So Leviticus, uh, and we're in chapter 8 tonight, um, just picking up where we left off last week in um, this amazing, curious book of Leviticus. So let's pray once more, and then we're going to just dive in. We're going to cover some ground tonight. We thank you, Jesus, for all the stuff we just sang. And Lord, you are holy, and if anything we learn from this book, it's that you are holy. You are altogether separate, different, other than. No one, nothing compares to you. And that you would make a way for us to have a relationship with you is beyond comprehension. And yet it's true. And so, Lord, we want to learn and have Bible study to learn the Bible, but it's more than that. We want to know how our lives can line up with, with you. We want to know you better. So would you give me grace to teach, but all of us grace to hear and to obey and to just know you better through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, chapter 8 tonight, hopefully going to grab chapter 8 and 9, and really we're starting a new section within the book of Leviticus. Um, Just by way of reminder, the book of Leviticus is more or less a worship manual for the children of Israel. There's the children of Israel, fresh out of Egypt, camped around Mount Sinai. They've been there for about a year. Moses went to the mountaintop, got the Ten Commandments, got the plans for the tabernacle. And what God was declaring was, I want to be in the midst of my people, but God is holy. And he wants to be in the midst of his people, but the problem is his people aren't holy. They're unrighteous. He's righteous. So he is going to establish a way for his people to worship him, approach him, and live lives that are pleasing to him. And that's what this book is about, how they were to worship or approach God. And um, I, I know I'm giving this outline quite a bit, but I want you to have a handle on the book. So the first 16 chapters deal basically with this idea of sacrifice. Sacrifice, and, and we already have looked at that. And then the last half of the book deals with separation and how to walk and how to live in a way that's separate from the world and separated unto God, and we're, we've been looking at that. But back to the beginning of this book, dealing with sa- sacrifice, right out of the gates, the first seven chapters were dealing with offerings. And it's offering after offering after offering. And what God was declaring right from the start, right out of the blocks, is this. One does not approach a holy God any way he or she wants to. That God is holy, and you and I, or they in this context, cannot just come into God's presence unless something is done about our sin because he is holy. Amen? He's holy. And so right away from the first chapter, we see bloodshed and this idea of sacrifice and this idea, listen, very important concept, substitution. That some innocent animal is dying in my place so that by faith, that animal is absorbing my sin and bleeding out from my sin because death, or excuse me, sin demands a sacrifice of blood, life for life. It, it, that thing's dying for me, and God is accepting that, and now I'm covered. And that's what we just read over and over again. Blood, 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 because the very basis of an unrighteous person approaching God means there has to be a substitute. Now we know. In those first seven chapters, as we looked at offering after sacrifice after offering, that every one of those 
ultimately points to Jesus. Can I get an amen on that? How many of you guys are glad we're not dragging sheep down the side aisle up here and slaughtering them so we can have acceptance with God? Jesus, as John the Baptist said, is the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. He died once and for all on the cross. There's no need ever again to bring an animal sacrifice because Jesus, God in the flesh, gave himself as our substitute and satisfied the righteous demands of the law. And so it's wonderful we looked at all of that. But as we get to chapter 8, it shifts gears a little bit. It's related hand in hand. But not, not, we're not talking so much about the sacrifices per se, but the priesthood. Now we're talking about the priesthood. Because not only is there a need for sacrifice, there's a need, listen, for someone to do the sacrifices. There's a need for a mediator, a go-between. If you would, someone to put their hand on mankind and their hand on God and bring them together, and this should come as no surprise to you, as we read about the priesthood, guess who perfectly fulfills this type in this picture as well? Jesus Christ. In fact, as he hung on the cross, you might say he was spread out with his hands out wide. And it's as if he was grabbing the hand of man and the hand of God and reconciling us together through his death on the cross on our behalf. Amen? He is God and he is man. And he was able to be the great mediator and great high priest. So he's not only the sacrifice, he's also the high priest. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 14 calls Jesus our great high priest. Hebrews chapter 5 through 7 talks about Jesus as being the superior priest to the Aaronic priesthood, which is what we're dealing with now. Aaronic just meaning those who were descendants of Aaron. But let's look at this tonight because um, what this is, is this kind of official introduction into the priesthood. Uh, Chapter 8 is the, um, if you would, the... uh, What's the word I'm looking for? The uh, ordination. There it is. The ordination ceremony for the, for the priest and for the following priests. So um, this chapter, chapter 8, is actually foreshadowed for us when we went through the book of Exodus in chapter 29. God said, when you have the priest, this is how you're going to ordain him. So this is like a, an ordination ceremony. This is kind of a special event. And it may be a little bit boring to us as we go through all the details, but listen, this would not have been boring for them. This is kicking off a whole new era where they are like, we have a mediator. We have a priest. The talk is over. All the rules are set, but now it's actually happening, and now we're going to be able to make sacrifices and come before God. So chapter 8 is the fulfillment of Exodus 29, the ordination ceremony uh, for the priest. And then chapter 9 is going to be kind of the actual uh, sacrifices taking place, and we'll see that. I know I haven't even started reading yet, but we're going to get to it. But I want you guys to, well, I'm just going to read, and then I'll talk more. More this, less me. Let's go. Chapter 8, the ordination ceremony, guys. Chapter 8, verse 1. So the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments and the anointing oil and the bull of the sin offering, and the two rams and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And so the first thing he's told to do is gather Aaron. Aaron is going to be the high priest. His sons would be priests after him. You couldn't be a priest unless you were related to Aaron. And so he says, gather all the guys. In fact, gather the congregation, and no doubt it meant all the elders, and just people gathered all around the tabernacle. Picture that in your mind. There's that tent with the courtyard, and they're all just huddled around. 
bring the sacrifices, bring the water, bring all these things that we'll talk about in a second because we're going to do this ordination ceremony. I want you guys to think about this as we go through this. Jesus is ultimately the fulfillment of this picture of the great high priest that we see in Aaron. But notice what it says. Bring Aaron and his sons. Bring Aaron and his sons with you. And if you want to follow that typology out, um, Jesus is the great high priest. He's the one and only mediator between God and man. Amen? 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. There's one mediator between God and man. is the man, Christ Jesus. But in a lesser way, the Bible declares in several places, if you're taking notes, jot this down. 1 Peter chapter uh, 2, verse 9. Revelation chapter 1, verse 6. Those are two places where the New Testament calls us who have put our faith in Christ that are born-again believers in Jesus, we are believer priests. We're lesser priests. We have a priestly ministry. It says in 1 Peter chapter 2 that we are a, a royal priesthood. Revelation 1-6 calls us a kingdom of priests. Now, don't get the wrong idea in that. We're not saying by that that people have to come to us to get to God. That's, that only through Jesus do people get to God. Amen? That's not what that's talking about. But it's a wonderful thing. We are believer priests. That's one of the things we are as Christians. And what the, the idea of that is the best way I've ever heard it put is this. Basically, it's, the idea is this, that I get to bring God before people and people before God. I get to pray to God about people, and I get to take the message of God and share it with people. And I'm trying to get that, we have a ministry of reconciliation to the Father. Amen? And so we have this ministry. Guess what? You might be sitting out there, you know, you work a job 40 hours a week. Well, we're on quite 80 hours a week. And, you know, just living life. But guess what the reality is? You're in the ministry if you're a Christian. You have a, a, a priesthood where you get to minister to people and you get to bless them in the name of the Lord. And so that's something I want you to think about because as we go through this, there's applications on both sides. Jesus being the great high priest, but us having a priestly ministry. Now check this out. Look at verse 5. And Moses said to the congregation, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded to be done. Moses brought Aaron and his sons, and he washed them with water, and he put the coat or the tunic on him, and he tied the sash around his waist, and then he clothed him with the robe and put on the ephod, and then he tied the skillfully woven band of the ephod around him, binding it uh, to him with a band. And he placed the breastplate on him, and then uh, in the breastplate he put the urim and the tumim, and he set the turban on his head, and on the turban in the front, he set the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses. You can read a lot about this in Exodus uh, 29 as well. Verse 10, Moses took the anointing oil, and he anointed the tabernacle, all that was in it, and he consecrated them. And then he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all its utensils in the basin and the stand to consecrate them. Look at verse 12. And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. And Moses brought Aaron's sons, clothed them with the coat, tied sashes around their waists, and bound caps on them as the Lord commanded Moses. There's three things I want you to note in that little section that we just read. Three things that happened to the priest and his sons, listen, in preparation for them to launch out into ministry. Okay, and here's the three things that, that, that went down, and we'll unpack each one of them. Number one, they were washed. Number two, they were clothed. And number three, they were anointed. 
before they could actually step into that ministry, this is what had to happen first in this one-time ordination ceremony. They had to be washed, they had to be clothed, and they had to be anointed. I do want to note this in case I forget to say it later. Notice, they didn't do that to themselves. They didn't wash themselves, they didn't clothe themselves, and they didn't anoint themselves. Somebody else was doing that for them. So why is that important? Because listen, guys, as we talk about us being a royal priesthood and having ministry, there's just three things right there for, that need to happen to us. We need to be washed. If you've been around like church a long time, there's, it, we don't really say it anymore, but it's like old time gospel thing where you, you get the question, have you been washed in the blood? What the heck does that mean? You don't wash with blood, you wash blood out. I mean, that's, you get blood on your shirt and you wash it out. Well, listen, all of us are sinners and we're stained. Our sins are like crimson, but the blood of Jesus Christ washes us as white as snow. Amen? And I love it. When Paul was giving his testimony way, you know, later in, in Acts chapter 22, he's giving his testimony before the crowd of the Jews. And, um, and he's talking about in his testimony when he went blind and he was there for three days and Ananias comes up to him. And this is what Ananias said to him. Ananias says, rise, be baptized, wash away your sins and call upon his name. Later in Hebrews chapter 10, it says, let us draw near with a true heart full of assurance of faith. Listen to this with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Before we can actually be effective ministers, we have to personally have our sins washed away by the blood of Christ. Yeah, amen? Have that sin. And, and it's that picture of baptism. Now, I want to clarify that because there's a lot of confusion on this. It's not the actual act of baptism that washes your sins away. Because baptism is just simply the outward expression of the inward reality. It's the physical component of the spiritual reality that's taking place. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, your sins are washed away in a moment. Amen? When we go into the waters of baptism, we're just declaring what's already happened spiritually and inwardly. We're declaring it outwardly and physically. We go down into the water and we're declaring the old me is dead and we're coming up out of the water saying I'm a new creation alive in Christ. Amen. My sins are washed away. And so it's funny. I was just having a conversation with my friend Andy on the way to church. And we're talking about ministry stuff and because and, he runs a missions organization, they have like this vetting process, you know, of, of, of people who apply all the time to be missionaries. And, and I won't give away specifics, but we were talking about a certain case where you know, this group of guys were going in to do a certain band ministry or whatever. And, um, but they, they were like vetting it, like, okay, here, here's this. And what happened was, is that within that process, you figure out, oh, this guy doesn't even know the Lord. <laughs> you know, or something like, you know, and it's like, that happens. People just hang around church, getting plugged in in ministries, but sometimes they don't even know the Lord. And, and, and I remember in Africa, years ago, I got to share this, you know, at this little makeshift Bible college we were doing in Sudan, of all places, and I'm sharing, and some of the pastors came to know Christ that day. And that's always a good thing when you're a pastor and you finally come to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. So, I mean, this is not something we should take for granted. We, you need to examine your calling in, in your life. You can come to church, you know, your whole life. That doesn't make you a Christian. Are you born again? Are you a believer in Christ Jesus? Have you had your sins washed away? Amen? And by the way, this was a one-time washing, this ordination. They would do a, kind of something like baptism, and they would come up. They didn't need to do that anymore. After that, you know what they would do? Wash their hands and their feet 
but they've already been fully washed. Does that ring a bell, by the way, when Peter said, if you've got to wash my feet, then wash all of me, Jesus. He says, listen, the person who's clean only needs his feet and his hands washed. We may have had all our sins washed away. We still get our hands dirty. We still get our feet dirty. We still need to kind of have that confession and that cleansing along the way. But they were washed. And we could go on and on with the, the picture and the analogy. But the point being is that they had to be washed. Secondly, they were clothed and as tempted as I am to go through each article of the, of the, uh, the outfit. I, I'll save you that. Except for, hey, get the, go to the podcast, man. You can listen to it late, earlier in Exodus. But here's the point. As soon as they were washed, they were clothed. I will say this. The first thing that went on them was, it's called a coat, but a better word would be a tunic. And if you look at Exodus 29, somewhere around verse 35, uh, actually not 35, but it's in Exodus 29, um, it talks about it being made of fine linen. It was like this long shirt that would go on. It was basically the underwear. It went right up against the skin. And I love that. And, And I'll tell you why in a second. Then they would tie a sash around it. And then they would put the robe on. And then they would put the ephod, that special vest that had these black onyx stones with the names of the tribes of Israel on the shoulders of the priest so that when that priest went in before God, he was shouldering the names of the tribes, bearing them before God. Then he would put on the breastplate. And the breastplate had 12 precious stones, each one representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Inside the ephod in some way was the Urim and the Thummim, which nobody knows what they were. It means lights and perfection. And whatever they were, these little rocks or whatever they were, had something to do with determining the will of God. And if you had a question about the will of God, you go to the priest, he would consult the Urim and the Thummim and give clarification. Each one of the, oh, then the turban, then the, the, the plate on front of the turban that said, holy unto God. And every single one of those has so much beautiful typology and picture to it. But I'll just say this one. I love that the first thing that he's clothed upon right after he's washed is the linen garment. Because all throughout the Bible, that fine linen garment speaks of righteousness. And it's right up against the skin. It's, and listen, nobody saw that. When you saw the priest in his, oh, you saw the, the plate on his head, you saw the ephod with the stone, you didn't get to see that simple, beautiful linen garment that's underneath, but it speaks of righteousness. And I was thinking about that, you know, the Bible says, Isaiah 61.10, let me just read it to you, it's one of the greatest verses in the Bible. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord, my soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garment of salvation. And he has covered me with his robe of righteousness. Amen? Do you know that when you came to know Jesus Christ, you didn't clothe yourself with righteousness, you were clothed upon with the righteousness of God. It took me so long to to, to get this, guys. I went so many years of my Christian life not getting this that the moment I gave my life to Christ, I was declared righteous before God. And there's nothing I can do to take away from that or add to it. It is what it is because I am in Christ. It is the righteousness of Christ, not the righteousness of Jason that I'm wearing anymore. He has put his righteousness on me because I've been washed and cleansed. Amen? So when the Father sees me, he sees me as righteous is Jesus. I don't, I pause when I say that. It sounds like it's blasphemy, but it's not. It's the good news. It's the gospel. And I was thinking about this, you guys. Nobody saw that righteousness or that undergarment, but it was there. You know, this is what separates Christianity from religion. When you come to Jesus Christ, 
He justifies ungodly people. He takes ungodly scrubs like you and me, and he, based on the sacrifice of Jesus, and as, as pa- Pastor Steve said the other day, we'd bring our sorry butts to God just in all of our failings and fail- faults and, and sin, and we don't try to earn it or give God an excuse to forgive us. We just say, I, I'm a mess, and I need your grace. And we, he responds by giving us his righteousness, and we're washed. He makes us righteous on the spot underneath on the inside and then over time guess what happens to that christian who's been made righteous on the inside it starts to come out on the outside what's religion flip-flopped religion is this i'm trying to attain a righteousness so i'm on the outside going to do all these things and follow all these rules and do all this stuff so that someday i maybe i can achieve that righteousness with god and god says no that's religion. Let's flip that around. I'll make you righteous, and then eventually you'll just clean up, and you'll, the outside will match the inside. Amen? Man, we, I'm so glad that we're not about religion. I'm so glad it's about a relationship with Christ. We have been robed in his righteousness, and, and so beautiful, so beautiful. And guys, I, I will say this too about some of those garments that were put on. Notice twice there's this, this belt that goes around, one on the inside, one on the outside. That belt speaks of the heart of servanthood. Jesus in John 13, about to go to the cross, takes off his garments, grabs a towel, wraps it around his waist, and begins to, to wash the feet of the disciples. You know, you and I are not going to be any use to the kingdom of God. We're not going to have that priestly ministry like we could unless underneath it all is a heart of servanthood to serve others and i you see that you see that on them you see taking the names of people before god and that's one of our ministries prayer so many beautiful pictures but we'll just leave it at this for now they were washed and they were clothed upon and guys we've been washed by the blood of jesus and we've been clothed in his righteousness amen he's changing us from the inside out but lastly and so importantly verses 10 through 13 it says that moses took the anointing oil and he's anointing the altar and he's anointing this but then he comes to aaron and it says he anoints aaron and the word that's used there it says he poured some of the anointing oil onto aaron there's a a, a psalm psalm 132 or excuse me psalm 133 verse 2 it says this well i'll just read verse one too it says behold how good how pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity it's like the precious oil on the head running down the beard on the beard of aaron running down on the collar of his robes the picture is this when he came to aaron to anoint him with this anointing oil to consecrate him for the ministry he's like little dabble do you on the altar little dabble do you on this and this and he comes to aaron and he's like just like dumping it on him just like oil running down, just like glistening all through his beard. I know it's cool to grease and oil your beard nowadays, but this is way before that. He's like, it's pouring down on his robe. Just, I mean, and there's a, the OCD in me is like, that's stained. It's ruining that. Anyway, that's, you know, how can you can't get that out? You got to wash that. Anyway, the point is, it wasn't a little. He dumped the oil on him. It's pouring down his beard, his face, his clothes, getting everywhere. It's a mess. It's beautiful because oil in the Bible often speaks of the Holy Spirit. And this is, I would say, one of the most important points that you can get, that I can get as it relates to serving the Lord in any capacity. We need 
the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Amen? We need to, listen, we don't need a little dabble, do you? We need a gallon jug of ointment, of oil rather, poured over our head. And I'm not talking literally. What I'm talking about is we cannot accomplish the work of God in the power of our flesh. And when we do, it is nothing but frustration and grinding. But when the power of the Holy Spirit is dumped upon us, when the Spirit of God comes upon us, and not just a little, a lot, we are able to, not by might, not by power, but by the Spirit, fulfill the work that He's called us to do. I think one of the greatest needs in the church right now is we all need a fresh baptism of the Holy Spirit to do the work of God. Because especially in the American church, and I'm not bashing like Western American churches, but it's like sometimes we have so many um, things to help us, like media and guitars and sound systems and lighting. None of those things are bad in and of themselves. But we can become very capable of putting on church or doing a, a thing without relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. And you know, this is a beautiful picture. Did you know that Jesus himself did not dare step into ministry until he was baptized with the Holy Spirit? Now that throws people for a loop sometimes because like, wait a minute, he's God. Doesn't he always have the Holy Spirit? Yes. It's a little complicated because he is the second person of the Godhead. But he, listen, he became a man. He didn't put away his deity. He added humanity. He became a man, lived 100% as a man, still God, but emptied himself of his, his divine prerogatives in that way and lived as a man for 30 years. He didn't do ministry for 30 years. But when he was 30 years old and he was baptized in the water by John the Baptist, it says the Holy Spirit came upon him like a dove, right? And it was at that point that Jesus for the next three years went into ministry. Not until he was baptized with the Holy Spirit. And that's why Jesus said in, in, in Luke 24 and in Acts chapter 1, Luke 24, he said, don't leave Jerusalem. Before that, he said, go into all the world, disciple the nations, you know, just go into the world and, and just convert everybody, but don't go anywhere until you are filled with the, the, the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's a, that's a great lesson because you can be like, I'm going to go into all the world. Okay, great. Don't go anywhere. <laughs> For, you, for the sake of you, for the sake of the rest of us, like you and I need the baptism of the Holy Spirit to do the work of God in this world. That's why he said you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. By the way, he was talking to people when he said that who already had the Spirit indwelling them. But he says, but wait for the baptism of the Spirit, which is the power of for the work of the ministry. Let me say this. Don't teach Sunday school unless you're filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't lead worship unless you're filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't be a deacon unless you're filled with the Holy Spirit. In fact, that's one of the prereqs for being a deacon. I don't know if you know that. Don't, listen, that's not like a legalistic thing. That's a, if you try in your own power, you're going to burn out. We need the Spirit. Well, how do I do that? I know this launches perhaps in a whole nother theological discussion. But can we just be really simple? Jesus wants to give you more of his Holy Spirit. And if you want to serve him, it really can be as simple as 
God, I need you, and I'm just going to wait in your presence. I'm going to ask you, God, fill me with the power of your Holy Spirit, and by faith you receive it. Jesus said, if you're evil and you know how to give your kids good gifts, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask it? You come desperate, you come in faith, you come like a child, and you say, fill me with the Holy Spirit. Amen? Well, those th- three things right there are so vital. They had to be washed, clothed, and anointed before they could actually engage in ministry. And for us, same thing. We need to be washed by the blood, clothed with his righteousness, and anointed by the Holy Spirit. Verse 14, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mosey right, uh, right along here uh, with no apology because we just spent the last like five weeks going over all these offerings, and now they're not talking about them anymore. They're doing them. So let's check it out. Verse 14. So then he brought the bull for the sin offering. You guys remember that one? Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull of the sin offering to kind of transfer that sin symbolically. Killed it. Moses took the blood with his finger, put it on the horns of the altar around it, purified the altar and poured it out at the base of the altar to consecrate it, make atonement for it. And he took all the fat that was on the entrails, the long lobe, the liver, the two kidneys, with their fat. Moses burned them on the altar. But the bull and the skin of the flesh and its dung he burned with fire outside the camp as the Lord commanded. So that was the sin offering. Again, I don't, we just spent a lot of time looking at that, but it is kind of neat like, to, to think, wow, like, they're doing it now. Instruction time is over. They're actually doing it. Verse 18. Then he presented the ram for the burnt offering. So that would be the, that offering of consecration. Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram. He killed it. Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar. He cut the ram into pieces, and Moses uh, burned the head and the pieces of, uh, and the fat, washed the entrails and the legs with water. Moses burned the whole ram on the altar. It was a burnt offering for a pleasing aroma, a food offering for the Lord as the Lord uh, commanded Moses. Now, verses 22 through 29, tune in because this is something new. It was mentioned in chapter 7, verse 37, when he said he mentioned the ordination offering. This is kind of a one-off. This is kind of like a a hybrid peace offering that's really confined just to this particular event. Look at verse 22. Then Moses presented the other ram, the ram of ordination. There it is. And Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram. He killed it. And Moses, now listen, listen to this. He took some of the blood and he put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. Then he presented Aaron's sons, and Moses put some of the blood on the lobes of their right ears, and on the thumbs of their right hands, and on the big toes of their right feet. And Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar. He took the fat, fat uh, tail, all that the fat that was on the entrails, the long lobe, and the liver, and the two kidneys, with the fat of the right thigh, out of the basket, uh, unleavened bread that was before the Lord. He took uh, one unleavened loaf, one loaf of bread with oil, one wafer, placed them on the pieces of fat and on the right thigh. Verse 27, put all these in the hands of Aaron and in the hands of the sons, and they waved them or kind of heaved them as a wave offering before the Lord. Then Moses took from their hands the burned and burned them on the altar with, uh, as a burnt offering. And this was the ordination offering, which was a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. And Moses took the breast and waved it before as a wave offering before the Lord. It was Moses' portion of the ram of the ordination as the Lord commanded Moses. I know that's a lot. It's a mouthful. But basically it was like a peace offering, if you remember that. Part of it went to God, part of it went to the guys, and they got to eat it. But what was unique about this one? Anybody catch that little weird twist in there? (laughs) Take some of the blood, 
get Aaron and puts him on his right earlobe, his right thumb, and his right big toe. And then get his sons and put a little blood on their right earlobes, their right thumbs, that's what it sounded like, and their right big toes. That's weird, but it's beautiful. God wanted his servants to have blood-stained ears, blood-stained hands, blood-stained feet. And the idea behind that, again, it's very symbolic, you know. But the idea was is that their ears, their right ear, the right side spoke of just the dominant side, okay? It's not nothing against lefties. But it, it was the dominant side. So it really represent all of their hearing or their, their, their ear gates and their idea of hearing. And what was he saying? My servants have to have their ears, in a sense, redeemed by the blood of Jesus. You've been redeemed, and so your ears are now dedicated to me. In other words, what you listen to, what's the authority in your life? You're not listening to what everybody else is listening to, and you're not influenced by what everybody else is influenced by, like the world. You hear the Word of God, and your life is now governed by the Word of God. That's what you're sensitive to. Does that make sense? And how true is that for us? If we're going to serve the Lord, man, we've got to guard what goes in, what we take into our ear gate or our eye gate, what influences us. And the rest of everybody else may be listening to that cultural idea or this or that, but we're different. We're people of the Word, amen? And we have to govern our lives by what the Word of God said. I'm so thankful. I'm just going to be blunt and just say I am so thankful for a pastor who gets up on Sunday morning and tackles tough things like women submitting to their husbands because that's what the Bible says. And it's not a bad thing, and it's not a tweaky, weird thing or some outdated thing. It's, it's a, the Word of God thing, and in its context and understood properly, it's absolutely beautiful. But there's a real temptation to hold back what's not culturally fun or easy to listen to. But you know what? We've got to push back against that and say, I don't care if I like it. I don't care if the culture likes it. What does God's word say? And that's going to be the final authority in my life. Amen? So they had to have ears that were, that were redeemed and now dedicated. They had to have their right thumb, which speaks of the hand, which speaks of their, uh, their, their work, their tasks, their ability. Hands, what they put their hand to, it is in, it's, it's set apart now. It's redeemed. And this is the same concept. The rest of the world, what you put your hand to may be one thing, but we got to be careful what we put our hand to as believers. And the way that we go about our work and the way that we go about our business, it's different because we've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We've been bought, as it says in the New Testament, by the blood of Christ. We don't even belong to ourselves anymore. We were bought by Jesus. And so the way we go about our business, the way we work, what we do, it's dedicated to Christ now been touched by the blood of Jesus. I, don't, I can't live the same way. My toe, my big right toe speaks of your feet. The Bible in the New Testament talks about our Christian life as a walk. And our walk is now redeemed by the blood of Jesus. We walk differently than the rest of the world. We're not better. It's just that we've been redeemed. And so we can't stay the same. We can't say we're, we're, we're believers in Christ and we've had our sins washed away and we're born again and we've been made righteous. And then walk, walking is... Um, metaphorical for lifestyle and have our lifestyle the same manner as everyone else i love what it says in a couple places but i i a kind of a go-to prayer for me is colossians 1 where it, it says where paul 
is praying for the Colossians and he's asking that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will with all spiritual wisdom and understanding and that they might walk in a way that's worthy of the Lord. I love that. It used to freak me out because I'm like, oh, I can never walk in a way that's worthy of the Lord. It doesn't mean you have to be perfect like the Lord all the time, but the idea is, is that your walk is in harmony with the Lord. Does that make sense? Your walk is pleasing to him. In fact, that's what it says in the next uh, phrase of that prayer. Doing all things that, that are pleasing to him. So you guys get the point. Our ears, our hands, our feet. We've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. So we don't listen the same way. We don't work or act the same way. We don't go and do the same things. We have been redeemed and it reflects in the way we live. That's the idea. You can't listen. You cannot be an effective servant of God. I'm talking about being a title of a pastor, a worship leader, whatever. I'm talking about claiming Jesus as your Savior and the way you go to work tomorrow. You cannot be effective for the kingdom of God if what you say and how you live are completely different directions. I'm not talking about being perfect. We're not perfect. None of us are perfect. But what's the trajectory of your life? What's the master passion of your life? Yeah, you may falter, you may fail, but do people at your work know, yeah, he's not perfect, but that guy loves Jesus, I can tell. Look at the way she works. Look at the way she talks. She doesn't gossip like everybody else. You know, like, man, it's got to line up. Well, that's the ordination offer. We're clearly not going to make it through chapter 9. I'm really upset about that. We might. We might. So just be good. Just kidding. <laughs> but we definitely want to end this. Look at verse 30. Then Moses took some of the anointing oil and the blood, uh, that was on the altar, and he sprinkled it on Aaron and his garments. There it is, staining those garments again. Also on his sons and his sons' garments, and he consecrated Aaron and his garments and his sons and his sons' garments with him. Again, we could talk more about that, but here we go again with this beautiful picture. They've, had, they've been washed, they've been clothed, they've been anointed, they, sacrifices have been made, now they're all ready to go, and what do they go and do? Sprinkle more blood and more oil on them. Because we cannot minister to others unless we have been redeemed by the blood of Christ and baptized with the Holy Spirit. Again, just the beautiful picture of that. But look at verse 31. This is fascinating. And Moses said to Aaron and his sons, Boil the flesh at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and there eat it, and the bread that is in the basket of the ordination offerings, as I commanded. Oh, I should pause there for a second. I'm not going to hit it tonight, but it's definitely going to come up next week. There's that phrase that keeps popping up, as the Lord commanded. They did, as the Lord commanded. They did, as the Lord commanded. Just put that in your back pocket for later. Verse 32. Uh, actually, verse, where did I leave off? Yeah, verse 31, actually. And Aaron and his sons uh, shall eat it. Verse 32. And what remains of the flesh of the bread you shall burn up with fire. Verse 33. You shall not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days until the days of your ordination are completed. For it will be seven days to ordain you. As has been done today, the Lord has commanded to be done to make atonement for you. At the entrance of the tent of meeting, you shall remain day and night for seven days, performing what the Lord has charged you, so that you do not die. <laughs> Glad he threw that in there. Don't do it six days, don't do it five days, do it seven days, so you don't die. For, I have been, uh, for as you have been commanded... And Aaron and his sons did all the things that the Lord commanded by Moses. I just, again, note that obedience. I want to say this. This kind of just struck me for whatever it's worth. You can take it. Maybe it speaks to you. Maybe it doesn't. Would you agree with me? That's a pretty ornate 
ceremony. I mean, there's a lot going on there. There's washing and clothing and anointing and sacrifices and cutting this and burning that and doing this and sprinkling. There's a lot. And then what does he say at the end? Good job. Now do it six more times. Exodus 29 says that they repeated it for seven, a whole week, seven days. He said, don't leave. Stay right there. Do it again. Do it again. Do it again. Seven days. And then it will be complete. Now, again, I, I can't exactly tell you why it had to be seven days, but we do know this. The, the number seven in the Bible is, is important. It's the idea of completion. And it's as if he's saying, your preparation and ordination will be complete, and then I'll unleash you to go and do the ministry. But until that preparation is complete, don't go anywhere. And I was thinking about this. Because I know if it were me, and I'm like one of the sons of the priest or whatever, and I'm getting to like day four, I know me. My attitude would be like, okay, get it. I know we killed the thing, we sprinkled the blood, I get it, okay, let's go, let's just move on. I'm ready, God. I'm ready for this. I've been born to do this. I get it. We did the ordination thing. Can we just skip it and boom? And God's like, don't skip the preparation process or you'll die. How many of you guys have discovered that God's preparation for when he wants to use you and use me usually takes way longer than we'd like it to? In fact, I wonder if there was a time when they're like, this is getting old. Same sacrifices. This is a bit mundane. This is a bit repetitive. I don't understand why I have to do this. All of those things I would be saying. And the, it's as if the Lord is saying, let, you know, trust the process. <laughs> I'm doing something that's bigger than you. I'm preparing you. And it's even, even, and by the way, even if it was just as simple as because God said so. If we can't just do it because God said so, then we're not ready for the ministry. Whatever the case may be, God was preparing them and he said, it's going to take longer than you like. It's going to be maybe mundane at times. You're going to question this or that. But let that preparation process com be completed and trust me, there's going to be plenty of time to do your ministry and do your work and do all that. But let me get you ready first. Amen? I just think that maybe there's some of you in here and you feel that call from the Lord and you know you want to serve and, and you're like, I don't understand why I have to do this though. I don't understand why I have to be in this place and this is getting old and I'm ready. And we've been talking about it a lot this week with my friend just about it's so crazy. You know, if God were to tell us 20 years ago, what we'd be doing 20 years from then, we'd be like, I'm out. Because he'll, pro he'll make a promise, but he'll take you a really long way to get there. Because he's a little more concerned about the minister than the ministry, and he is building into you character, and he's preparing you, and he's preparing the ministry for you, and you for the ministry. And so, if you're one of those that are maybe getting impatient, and you're in that place, just keep doing what God's got you doing right now. Just be faithful. And when the time's right, he'll kick you loose. But until then, don't buck against the process. Amen? Amen. Chapter 9. Just kidding. We'll pray. 
Father, thank you so much for your word, and uh, we love you, and it's amazing that um, all these things that took place thousands of years ago, and yet we, we would think, how could that ever re- relate to my life? And I read it, and I'm like, oh my goodness, this is my life. Thank you so much, Lord. I, I, you know, if we forgot all the details of this stuff, Lord, we just together, we just want to say this. Thank you for the blood of Jesus that washed our sins away. Thank you for your righteousness. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for choosing us and loving us. And, and God, we, we do pray that you would use us and we'd be faithful ministers, that our eyes, ears, hands, feet, everything would just be separated unto you. I do pray for those who are in that preparation process and maybe getting frustrated. Oh, Lord, help them to hold on. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We look forward to uh, more lessons from Leviticus. In Jesus' name, amen.